Two and a Half Admins, episode 36. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And shock horror, you've got a blog post to promote, Alan. Yes. Uh, so this week we got uh, a rundown of the FreeBSD IOSTAT tool, which can tell you about what's happening on your system in a bunch of different ways, including how much is going through the teletype. <laughs> But more usefully, how much is going on in the CPU and monitoring all of your disks, including separating them by type. Fair enough. And you also want to plug EuroBSDCon 2021 call for papers. Yes. I only have a couple more weeks left to submit your talk proposal. Uh, The conference is going to be remote this year, so it means it's that much easier for other people to present, even if you can't make it to Vienna this time. Right. Well, links to both those in the show notes then. Let's do some news then. And the first one is something that you tried out and wrote about, Jim. Graphical Linux apps on the Windows subsystem for Linux, WSLG. Yes, we have GUI apps in uh, WSL now. And uh, the the whole experience was pretty great, honestly. Every time I've installed WSL uh, you know, to write about it for ours, it's always been a pain in the ass. You know, there's like... There's some extra step you have to do this time that you didn't last time or that, you know, whatever tutorial you're following didn't quite get you to. And either you don't have everything you need or you got WSL 1, you wanted WSL 2. You know, there's just all kinds of pitfalls and and crap. But this time around, the uh, the only real difficult part is that you got to be on a Windows Insider dev channel build. You can't install it on a normal Windows 10 machine. But uh, once you've done that, once you've verified that you're on Windows 10 Insider dev channel, all you got to do is drop to a terminal and say uh, WCL dash dash install, and uh, that's it. Installs everything, including the graphic and audio support. And uh, for the most part, everything just works. I ran Firefox under WSLG, so, you know, the Ubuntu Firefox in a window on a Windows 10 desktop. Um, that was kind of surreal. But uh, video and audio both worked fine. Um more importantly, this is like a big get for me. I ran Vert Manager on it, which, you know, there's no Windows port for Vert Manager, which has been a pain in my butt because you got to yeah, install something like MOBA Xterm to get a, a Windows X11 server and, uh, you know, then do like an SSH-X to some other machine to run Vert Manager on. And like it mostly works, but um, some of the elements are always wonky when you do that. Uh, like drop-down menus never look right. It's enough to really be annoying anyway. And... None of that was the case under WCLG, even though it's still very much in beta and only available on the dev channel of Insider Builds, I wouldn't have been upset with it at all as a day-to-day tool. Yeah, it sounds quite interesting. So is it actually running some kind of X server or? Yeah, it's actually running uh, X Wayland. That was going to be my other question, was it actually Wayland at the back end? Yeah, it's a Western compositor, right? Yeah, that was actually, uh, I, I listened to you guys' coverage of that on Late Night Linux, Joe, and... Um, I don't know if the conspiracy theory is exactly the uh, phrase I want to use, but it it occurs to me as kind of interesting that right in the same month, Ubuntu finally releases an Ubuntu desktop based on Wayland, and Microsoft, who has been buddy-buddy with Canonical for several years now, pushes out their first graphical, you know, Linux-style display server for Windows, and it's, you know, Wayland, not Xorg. I don't think there's any conspiracy there. I think it's just that Wayland is finally in a position where it's ready. So Wayland arguably has been ready for a while, but you know Canonical just hasn't felt the need to do anything with it. It's wild speculation on my part. It's not like I'm mad at anybody if it did happen that way, but I can't help but wonder if you know Microsoft engineers are like, you know, we're going to do this WSLG thing, but if we got to do all this crap, let's let's do it on Wayland, please. And like they're already working with the Canonical folks, so for sure, if 
you're building something new, you would be like, well, let's target where things are going, not where they are now or where they are trying to leave from. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, it would be terrible. So how well did the apps like integrate into the field of Windows? Like, No, they, it, they, were, uh, they were skinned as though they were on a, a Linux machine. Right. The window decorations were a little large-ish and like old school looking. Like maybe the, um, the DPI scaling isn't quite right or just that they're just the theme is just old. No, the the theme just looks like super old. It's like um I don't know, like Windows XP sized window decorations. Okay. Um they're not colored, it's all monochrome. It's very simplistic. But uh they're just they're noticeably big and kind of crude looking. But it does integrate pretty well into the system, right? In terms of like the panel and the uh menu and everything. You still get a panel for it on the launcher um in the Windows desktop. Window decorations themselves are a bit hit and miss. Like Firefox had a full set, but Everything else pretty much just had, uh, you know, like an X and that was it. But the uh, the window up and window down keyboard shortcuts to minimize and maximize work on Windows. But the window button left and right shortcuts to maximize half left and half right, those did not work. But it's still just a developer belt, right? So. Yeah, it's still just dev belt. If I was a Linux conspiracy theorist, I'd be like, yes, well, what Microsoft managed to do here is give you just enough Linux to never need to install Linux. And this is always a topic that comes up. Is this good for Linux? Is it bad? Oh my God, you know, this is going to kill the dream of Linux on the desktop, but I don't see it. Um, no, and I think there's a, there's a big plus for us, you know, all in on the Linux or BSD ecosystem folks here too, because when people start asking like, you know, what's the killer Linux app, they usually have trouble coming up with one. Um, you know, for mine, it's vert manager cause there's no windows port of it. And I use it like every day and it's crucial. But the thing is, there have been lots of killer Linux apps. They just, they've long since gotten ported to Windows as well because, you know, I mean, you got to do that to get the market share. But once WSLG is, you know, in everybody's hands and it's, you know, complete, it's already stable, but, you know, a few more minor bugs maybe get worked out. I don't know. The question then becomes like, if you're a Linux developer and you make the next Audacity or Blender or GIMP or Krita or whatever, do you even care about doing a native Windows port anymore? Because it's easy to just run your app under Windows and have it run quite well indeed. Yeah, I can definitely see the case uh, for that, where it means more and more apps will not bother with a native Windows port. And, you know, the other direction as well is now you've got a whole bunch of Windows people who will start getting introduced to the real power of a proper shell and everything and might inspire more of them to be like, well, it turns out I use almost all the Linux stuff on my Windows machine. Why don't I just switch to Linux? Which is a lot of how I switched to Linux on the desktop. I mean, you know, I had been finding ways to do things on Windows, you know, Sigwin or, you know, whatever, yada, yada, yada for a while. Oh, yeah. And I've had the, the GNU Win32 package installed on every one of my Windows computers for almost 20 years huh. now so that I could just have grep and sort and so on at the in the Windows command line for the odd time I needed them for something. Yeah. We do like to take the piss out of you, Alan, for running Windows, but you do run Windows right now on that machine you're talking to yeah. us. Like, it, Does this interest you, being able to run Linux stuff? Yeah. Being able to have a real shell is kind of helpful, although my need for it isn't that great because there's not much stored on this computer. Almost all of its storage comes off my FreeBSD NAS in the basement, and so if I need to do something to my files via the shell, I just do it over SSH and so on. And I kind of in, in the same situation as, as Jim, it's like if outside of the bit of media stuff, and now that OBS works so well, short of a little bit of video gaming and so on, every app I use works perfectly fine on, on Linux and BSD now, right? Like the 
chat clients I use like Quasal and the my Firefox and Thunderbird and my text editors and you know there's not much keeping me on Windows much anymore except for video games and and media production. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with a choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage, or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved my website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a mumble server for our late night Linux community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash two and a half, get your $100 credit and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first class always available support. That's linode.com slash two and a half. So another big story in Linux land over the last couple of weeks is the University of Minnesota and them doing an experiment on the Linux kernel. I believe the phrase you used was right shower of bastards, and I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Well, in particular, this was them conducting an experiment not on the kernel, but on the kernel developers, you know, the people. Yeah, uh, if you've been living under a Linux rock for the last couple of weeks and don't know what we're talking about, Three researchers from the University of Minnesota decided that they wanted to, uh, it kind of amounts to a penetration test, really, of uh, the Linux kernel development process. And what they said they did is found three minor bugs in Linux and three other bugs that uh, were what they called, I believe, immature vulnerabilities. I, I would probably say latent. Basically, it's a bug that can't be exploited uh, yet, just because some condition hasn't been met. And what they would do is they would take these three minor bug fixes they'd made and they would introduce the missing condition for an existing bug to get exploited. And they, they called this hypocrite commits. Your, your guess as to exactly why they thought that was a great name is as good as mine. But so they, they would take these patches and they would ask a first-line developer on the LKML, you know, hey, can you take this over? Does, does this look good? And, you know, if that first line developer who, you know, usually when somebody asks for help like this, what they're really saying is, can you, you know, help me make sure I get my ducks in a row so that a senior dev isn't going to get, you know, mad at the style that I wrote this in or, you know, whether I get tabs instead of spaces or, you know, whatever. Not like, hey, I need you to tell me, like you and only you need to certify this code bug free. Like, that's not really how that works, Right. But at that point, uh, they would kind of declare that a win and they would tell the developer who'd said, you know, okay, thanks, looks good or whatever. They would say, nope, don't use that. That's a bad patch and this is why and this is what will happen if you do that. But here's a good patch that doesn't do that because I'm a good Linux citizen. They did this for a total of three supposed bugs and there's, there's some dissent as to whether they even actually found and fixed any real bugs. Greg KH has been very unimpressed on the LKML, let's say. Banned their entire domain and reverted all 190-something commits. Well, tried to revert them all, found some that had problems, and so quickly reverted all the ones he could easily revert, and then was going to review the rest. The uh, the kernel development team has put the entire University of Minnesota on a uh, default deny policy at this point. Which is sort of fair enough, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it really pretty much is. The thing is, there were ways that these folks could have gone about their project ethically, and they just 
didn't, you know, uh, like I said, it, you know, it was what amounted to it was what amounts to a pen test. And there are established ways that, you know, you negotiate a pen test. You know, first you actually get the consent of the facility that you want to test. And, you know, then you get a contract. You have a scope of what you can and can't do. Yeah, and usually that's a deal with management, right? And they don't necessarily tell all their subordinates that it's going to happen. Exactly. So that that's the next objection everybody always has is that, you know, you can't do that without attaining the results. And it's like, look, you know, Linus frickin' Torvalds is not the one who's answering every newbie's first email, you know, with a random patch they've got. You can get a sign-off from Linus without, you know, tainting the entire experiment. So, of course, the next objection is, well, Linus is just going to tell me to pound sand. And that's almost certainly true. But A, there was a chance. And B, the whole point of asking for permission is the implied right of the person you're asking to say no. Like, this is what makes it ethical. Yeah, although for research on humans, usually you need the informed consent of the person being researched on, not just the person they work for. (laughs) You know, this is a a weird gray area in that, you know, you're doing research on people, although really you're checking the procedure that the Linux kernel mailing list uses to review incoming patches and so on. It's definitely sticky, but they definitely didn't do the right thing. I don't know that anything they could have done would have got them where they wanted to go, but you know, maybe that was for the best in the end. This is an aspect that I haven't seen anybody really talking about much, but they kind of doubled down and got salty with Greg KH on the mailing list. Yeah, they started saying, oh, this is you treating noobs badly and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, you know, saying Greg KH was slandering them and uh, they're just being, he was just being so mean and they didn't know the colonel that well. And it's like, well, you know, if you don't know the colonel that well, then why are you trying to advise us on the colonel? Why are you building, you know, this tool that supposedly will automatically detect and repair issues in the kernel that produces garbage. And you don't say, hey, can you check the results of my tool for me? You know, you say, hey, here's patches, apply these. This whole thing kind of came in two waves. There was the hypocrite commits that the UMN researchers admitted to being bogus, but that was only three patches. There were another much larger batch of patches submitted by, uh, I'm probably going to butcher his name, Aditya Paki. He had already submitted tons of them, which had already come to Greg KH's attention, not because somebody said, you know, oh, I gave you a bad patch, but because it was freaking garbage. And, uh, you know, he's pointing out that uh, you're writing patches for bugs that don't exist and introducing bugs with your nonsense patch that anybody who can read see can see is nonsense. Why are you wasting our time? Yeah, I think uh, a little bit in the very beginning of this, when people just saw the abstract of the paper, there was some people assumed it meant that these researchers had managed to, you know, introduce a hundred bugs into the Linux kernel. And that's resulted in the kind of knee jerk reaction of just revert everything that this university has ever submitted, including some stuff from years ago before this research that had nothing to do with it and so on. Yeah, but the university's had ethical problems for a long time. In like 2014, the University of Minnesota got in trouble because uh, one of its research groups just basically shit up all the reviews on an Amazon Mechanical Turk review website 
third party, not run by Amazon, just some person had set up a website, you know, to review Mechanical Turk opportunities and or workers, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, these University of Minnesota folks just decided, hey, we'll just, you know, crap this all up with tons of bad reviews and see what the impact of that on people is. Ouch. What happened to Minnesota Nice, eh? Yeah, Minnesota Nice apparently is for the underclass only. <laughs> So we can't ignore the FreeBSD WireGuard connection here. Um, it's not the same thing, but there are some parallels at least. Basically, no amount of code review can catch everything. At the same time, maybe no amount of code review can catch anything, but um, these folks' patches did not make it past the senior kernel reviewers on the Linux side. Well, part of the time was because as soon as it went past the first level, they're like, actually, no, here's the real patch. No, they were already on Greg KH's shit list from the first, you know, hundred and some odd that they never said, these are bogus. He had already complained to their university about them two or three times before the latest hypocrite commit thing, which kind of, you know, it brings us back to the whole like, no, man, it's, it's a lot harder to slip one by in the Linux kernel community. Greg KH was already aggro with these folks at their university level before they started saying, hey, we gave you bad patches. Right, okay. Uh, there seems to be a lot of confusion around how many bad patches they actually sent. Was it 100 or was it three <laughs> or five, I guess, in that other paper? I think it was roughly 100 that were, you know, just the garbage supposedly produced by this tool that uh, Aditya uh. Paki wrote. But um, I'm not really qualified to say personally, Greg K.H. seemed to think there was no such tool, that that was just more, you know, smoking lies. Right. So the, the tool generated patches that just weren't very useful. And then, then separately, they had the hypocrite commits, which were purposely bad patches right. that they would then swap out with a good patch. Although at this point, you know, this is assuming that the first batch really were generated by some tool and everything is exactly as described. Right. Which I don't, I don't know that we can really just assume that right. at this point. Yeah, having dealt with tools like Coverity, which usually find legitimate issues, although many times ones that aren't necessarily worth the effort to fix. It's like, oh, you didn't free this bit of memory right before you exit the program, and so it will get freed anyway. Right. Uh, you can get a lot of niggling warnings like that, and it can be a burden to have people submit a bunch of diffs just to deal with these things that aren't important at all and can drown out real work that's trying to to get done and reviewed. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. I've just started my learning journey with CBT Nuggets, but I've already picked up tons of knowledge from the short and manageable videos in the Docker and Network Fundamentals courses. Their in-house trainers are active and certified IT professionals who add around 40 hours of new training to the course catalog each week so you can always stay current and up-to-date. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. You can send your questions in to show at 2.5admins.com. And thank you everyone who supports us on Patreon and PayPal. That's really appreciated. If you want to learn more about that, 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month, you can get an advert-free RSS feed on Patreon. So the first question is from a patron. Thor says, I want to set up a Nextcloud server, among other things, on a VPS. 
and I intend to use Docker Compose and ZFS. But I want to make sure that I can back up the data to my NAS at home. I also want to be able to recreate the VPS in a relatively short time in case the hosting provider burns down. Yeah, that bit me. Ouch. What would be the best way to organize the data and configuration to allow me to get a new VPS up and running from my backup quick and easy? I'm considering Docker volumes, and I'm testing a Docker setup on my NAS using Docker ZFS storage driver, mounting var lib docker, and adding ZFS driver to the config. But this creates loads of sub-volumes and datasets. The sub-datasets have names that make it hard to distinguish a volume with video data that I don't need to back up, and the ones with my pictures and documents that do need backing up. Would you discuss structuring, and also how I would implement a backup software like Sanoid or others? Would it also make sense to have that set up in Docker Compose to make sure that any deployment would also get the backup software running? Is an Ansible role better for that? I'm not that familiar with the Docker bits of this, but in general, what I would do here is create two datasets called like backup and no backup under wherever you're going to put this in your ZFS hierarchy so that it ends up in your Docker container or whatever, and then create your sub datasets under that and just manipulate the mount points to integrate them into the normal place in your file system where you'd want them to be. And then you can easily snapshot all the stuff under the backup dataset and replicate it using Sanoid or whatever, and not do that for the ones under no backup. I think it may be a little bit more difficult than that. Um, and the the problem is that most of this really comes in the Docker side, not the ZFS side. And I'm not any more familiar with Docker than Alan is. I've seen it like a couple of times with ZFS. And from what I recall, by default, Docker just kind of creates data sets where it wants to do so. And it's kind of a, a giant hodgepodge of like all the stuff, you know, underneath one place. There's not really a good way to separate out the what you do versus what you don't want to back up. Where Docker keeps those is almost certainly configurable if you can find it, but I can't really tell you, you know, where to go to get there. But beyond that, yeah, if you can, what, what Alan said is, is exactly correct. Uh, pretty much always when you've got stuff that you do want to back up and stuff that you don't, then uh, you want to have them under separate parent data sets so that you can just replicate the parent data set of all the stuff you want to back up and get it all backed up. In that case, it's probably easiest to just make the data sets that actually contain the pictures and the videos outside of Docker and just mount them inside, you know, in the subdirectory in the container where they'll be visible or whatever. Nope. Doesn't work that way? The, the Docker ZFS stuff has like lots of integrations with, you know, rolling back the container, rolling back the data set and like it's tied into ZFS. It has its own ideas of what it wants to do. Right. And the, but that's all for the, the Docker container. And I'm saying, if can you just mount, say, the video data set as a extra data set over top of an empty directory somewhere in the Docker container and have it not managed by Docker while the rest of the Dockery stuff is so that you can back up and restore the whole Docker container or do all the Dockery stuff with ZFS, but just have the, mm. you know, your video and and pictures data sets be separate and not managed by Docker and then just mounted into the container. That's basically how you normally do stuff with jails on FreeBSD. Uh, is that, you know, the jail contains the extra copy of the operating system or whatever you're going to run in the jail, and then you just mount some data into a data directory somewhere from the host. That's not going to be problematic as well, because, you know, the containers are containers. They have access to very specific parts of the file system. Right. And uh, if you just jump in another directory that's, you know, mounted beneath, uh, the container knows the difference. And if the other is outside its path, it's not going to be happy about it. And you can also alter, you know, what that container's, you know, allowed paths ought to be, but just 
I don't think any of this ends up being simple. (laughs) It sounds to me that maybe containers, for all the benefits that they bring, are maybe not the way to go about doing this particular job. Probably not. Like if you can just have where Nextcloud keeps its configuration be a data set, like where it's metadata database and all that, and then you have the data sets for videos and the data set for pictures or whatever, and you replicate the first two, the the Nextcloud data set and the pictures data set, but not the, the video data set, then all you have to do when you reset up your VPS is install Nextcloud and then replicate back with the backup tool the Nextcloud configuration and database and the, the files that you want to be on the VPS and you're done. That's pretty much how, like at my video streaming company, how the servers are built. Uh, each server has a slash CFG directory that contains about 10 files of local configuration. And the rest of the operating system is a ZFS data set. And when it's time to upgrade the operating system, we just overwrite it with a newer one. And we do that all the time. And then they have another separate data set where they keep caches and, and local data that can go away. But the more is cached, the more money we save and so on. And talking about the, the idea of having the two different parent data sets, another way I've uh, used a system like that before is to separate out chunks of a file system. So in FreeBSD, most of your binaries under, you know, USR slash bin, uh, but then you have USR local where you have all your local stuff. Uh, and so I made two different hierarchies so that all the stuff under user bin, user sbin, and a bunch of other system directories were read-only, but the stuff where you, you know, user home and user local where you install packages were not read-only. So you could have an immutable base system, but you could do whatever you wanted in this way. No one could install a set UID binary in the wrong place because they could only install it in user local, which had the the ZFS flag that doesn't allow set UID binaries and things like that. It works very well for being able to do backup this and not that is like Jim said, just two different parent data sets. So you can have different policies. And that's why you have this tree of data sets in ZFS with the inheritances so that you can define a policy at this level and everything under it will inherit that policy. But the sibling can have a different policy and all of its children will inherit that. Okay, Laubo, I think that's how you say it, says, I have a Windows 10 machine that I would like to turn into a VM using Beehive on FreeBSD. KVM on Proxmox is also of interest for a friend of mine who's a Debian Linux fan. I'd appreciate your advice on how to configure the storage for the VM and any recommendation for backup of the VM. Any advice how to turn the Windows host into a VM aside from installing it from scratch is also welcome. Are there still a lot of tools around the whole physical to virtual stuff? It's the same old ones. They generally work. Yes. So for that, I would say use the physical to virtual tool, which would normally make you like a VMDK for VMware. And then you can use either the QMU or VirtualBox tools to convert it to a RAW, which you can then use on FreeBSD or KVM. Those tools are kind of a pain in the butt. They're not that great, especially not the free versions. Um, at this point in time, you're probably better off just using the Windows 10 backup, like the literal Windows backup tool. Uh, you know, save that to a location on the network, and um, then you can use Windows Restore once you've done a clean Windows 10 install in your in your uh, VM. Get your all of your setup back that way. I've found that to be more reliable than the uh, God, what is the name? It's it's a VMware tool. Yeah, and it's just general P to V stuff because the the main thing is that. Windows only installs the drivers for the stop, the hardware it sees, and getting it to have the right drivers to run in the virtualization is always more complicated. Especially like Windows in FreeBSD, you need the the Red Hat or basically I think on KVM too, you want the Red Hat Virdio drivers, which aren't going to be there by default. Although 
you can either install them, uh, slipstream them into the install if you're doing a new install or install them on the Windows 10 before you P2V it. But I, I second Jim's idea that you can do it that way, but you're probably going to have a lot less hassle just doing a regular Windows install and then restoring a backup of whatever it was or just rebuilding it. Like, a, I don't know what's on your Windows 10 box that you're uh, wanting to get into the VM because if it's just a couple of apps, it might be faster to just do it all from scratch. But the the Windows backup tool has gotten quite a bit better of, of saving your state and making it so that, you know, reinstalling your OS is not as traumatic as it used to be. Yeah. And, uh, the, you know, the other problem with using uh, v- was it VMware Converter, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. I've encountered a few boxes that uh, the resulting image was unusable as it was because it would have uh, like a motherboard driver installed on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are Asus is particularly bad about this. A lot of their driver patch sets, um, if those are present on a machine that is not, you know, based on that Asus motherboard, it will just blue screen <laughs> immediately. And uh, that was happening inside the VM images and trying to figure out how to, you know, remove that from that image was a giant pain in the butt. And uh, if you do, if you do it the, the Windows backup route, then you don't have that problem at all. Yeah, it's always been the problem with Windows is unlike, you know, a Unix like Linux or, or FreeBSD where all the drivers are there and it just loads the ones based on the hardware it finds and it can be different hardware every reboot and it doesn't care. Windows very much builds up a lot of state about what drivers are installed and how they're used and what plugged into what and so on. Uh, and it gets very upset if, you know, suddenly even it can be as simple as if you go in your BIOS and change uh, your storage controller to to do AHCI versus RAID versus emulating IDE and Windows will just blue screen at boot and be like, I can't find the hard drives because I didn't bother installing the drivers for the other options. So as for the other part of the question, I think even I can answer this one. I can guess what you two are going to say. Oh, goody. Where are you going to store your VMs and do your backups? Well, just ZFS solves that problem as we've talked about many, many times. Right. If you're using Beehive on FreeBSD or KVM on Proxmox, both cases, you end up with the, the VM files living on ZFS. And so it's easy to snapshot them and replicate them using a tool like Sanoid or whatever to get them somewhere else in a way that you can spin up that VM on the other box uh, when the time comes. If you're doing on vanilla FreeBSD, I would recommend using ZVols as opposed to just putting you know, files in a, in a data set uh, because I did the work to hook Beehive up to do trim correctly. So it will actually, uh, when you free space inside the guest, uh, and the guest does a trim on the virtual SSD that is the, the virtual hard drive, that will result in ZFS actually freeing the space on the host. Doing that for files doesn't quite work yet, but will eventually. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.